You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. And the, if I could summarize and boil down what this book is about in a sentence, we've been saying, I've been saying, that the point of the book is this, that the unadulterated gospel is the key to transformation and freedom. Paul was writing to correct a misunderstanding. People were, uh, there was a group of people that were teaching and believing that if you want God to fully love you, accept you, be pleased with you, embrace you, forgive you, save you, then yes, you need Jesus. He's very important. But you also have to live a good life. Jesus plus obedience. And he writes this letter, Galatians. As a response to say, additives are subtractive. If you add anything to the gospel, if you add anything to Jesus, you gut the gospel of its goodness, of its good newsness. You obliterate the gospel as a whole. The gospel is, plain and simply, Jesus plus nothing. So we're going to continue to look at that tonight, beginning in verse 26 of chapter 3. And there you go. It says this. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights as sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Let me pray, and then we'll consider what that means. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this... um, chance to be together, this chance to be quiet, this chance to breathe and submit to the hearing and the teaching of your word. Father, I know that folks come into this room in all kinds of different conditions. Like that song we just sang, some of us come in here deeply wounded, looking for healing, deeply hurting, uh, angry, doubting, uh, cynical, not believing, thinking all this is kind of stupid. Uh, excited, um, overwhelmed. Father, for however we find ourselves tonight, I pray that you would meet with us. Would you heal us, Emmanuel? Would you comfort us? Would you give us good news from your word? And we would ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I recently heard about this study that was conducted where they, the people who were organizing the study got a bunch of people in a room that were really good at math, like extremely good math students that had scored perfectly on their SATs and uh, in the math section. And uh, they brought them all into this room for a math competition. That's what everybody thought. But unbeknownst to the math people, it was a secret scientific experiment that was taking place. See, the, the, the people that were putting on this experiment had profiled the math students. And they had figured out that about half of the room had really good affirming relationships with their fathers. And for the other half of the room, they had really harsh, strict, demanding fathers that only showed their love when their kid was performing and showed disdain and disappointment and intensity when they were failing. So they start the test, and everybody's in the room, and they're on these computers, and they're, taking, they're, they're, they're working through these math problems, and they're measuring everybody's progress, and they're all performing at about the same level. And about halfway through this experiment, they subliminally flash on the computer screen an image of that student's father in front of them, which means it was flashed so quickly that they weren't aware that it happened, but their brain was able to process it, which is kind of freaky and weird. But they measured what happened, how they continued to progress after that flash happened. And for the half of the room um, that had uh, affirming relationships with their fathers, they continued to do well. They deeply believed, oh, my father loves me, and they felt secure, empowered to keep going, and they continued to do well for the rest of the test. But for the half of the room that had harsh relationships with their fathers that felt uncertain about their, the love of their father, that image triggered pressure. It triggered anxiety. It, it triggered the voices that no doubt kind of came in and said, like, you are worthless, you are a failure, you're, you are a nobody. And their performance plummeted. And I think it's really interesting because it shows you that there was something deeply programmed in both of them at a subconscious, subterranean level where half of them were programmed with a deep confidence of their father's love and half of them were programmed with a deep uncertainty of their father's love and that had two different outcomes in their life in that moment. Now, think about that study for a second. Keep that in mind. And now think about the movie The Help. You remember the movie The Help? It, um, in many ways, kind of featured this uh, African-American woman named Abilene who was taking care of this little white child named Mae Mobley. Mae Mobley's real mother was a wealthy southern socialite that was a bad mother and neglected her child and was so self-absorbed that she thought her, her kid was just sort of an inconvenience to the way that she wanted to live her life. So Abilene was the one that was really raising this little kid, Mae Mobley. And as, if you remember from the movie, she was constantly saying this uh, phrase to her, this, this thing that every time she was like either cuddling with her or putting the kid down, remember she would say, you is kind, you is smart, you is important. Now, why was she doing that? Why was she continuing to send that message to this kid? It's because I think she knew that that was not a message she was getting from her real mom. And so she was setting out to reprogram this kid's sense of self, this kid's sense of an identity. You is kind. You is smart. You is important. Now, the reason I want you to think about those two realities is because I think that that shows us 
that we all come in deeply programmed with beliefs. And everyone in this room came into this room, came into this world with a default operating system. You came to this world deeply programmed with some beliefs. And your beliefs are this, that God is harsh and that he is strict and that he is demanding and that I am a disappointment and I'm an inconvenience. And if I'm going to get this God to love me and bless me and make my life work out the way I want it to work out, then I need to behave. I need to perform for him. That is the default setting in all of us, all of our hearts, deeply programmed. And so what Paul is doing in the book of Galatians is he is trying to reprogram the way that we think. The way that we think about who God is and the way that we think about who we are. If you read through the book of Galatians, and in fact if you've been coming a lot this semester, it just sounds like the same thing over and over and over. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. nothing. Jesus plus nothing. Because that's what he's doing. He's just pounding over and over and over and over, trying to reprogram how we think. In fact, Martin Luther said this. He once wrote, Most necessary is it that we know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. And that's what Paul's doing. He's just beating the gospel into our heads over and over and over. What does it mean to be united to Christ by faith? And what he's going to show us tonight is what it means to be united to Jesus by faith is that we are adopted as sons. And that means a ton of different things, but I want to draw out what that means in three ways. That means that we have a new status. It means we have new clothing. And it means we have a new experience. So that's what I want to try to untangle from this passage with you tonight. What it means to be adopted means we have a new status, we have a new clothing, and we have a new experience. What do I mean first when I say this means that we have a new status? We'll look at verse uh, 26. We'll start at the top. It's a good place to start. It says this. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I feel like I need to make two quick disclaimers on the front end. Disclaimer one. As you can see, the Bible does not say that everyone is a child of God. It's kind of common language for people to say, well, everyone's a child of God. We're all children of God. But the Bible says, no, you are a child only through faith. You're a son through faith. The Bible seems to say that we show up as spiritual orphans. We're estranged from God's family, and yet in his grace, he adopts us through faith in Christ. We don't show up as sons. We become sons through faith. Second disclaimer, okay, why does it say sons? Why not sons and daughters? I mean, isn't this the Bible being uh, archaic and gender exclusive and outdated? In fact, some modern translations have tried to be, in the name of trying to be more progressive, they've changed the translation to say, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, which sounds a whole lot more inclusive. It just misses the revolutionary point that Paul's trying to make here. Here's what, he's, here's what he's up to. In Paul's culture, women were despised. Uh, women were put in second place in, in much the same way that they are today, unfortunately. Uh, women had no rights. Women could not inherit their family's estate or land or wealth. It all went to the sons. The sons were the favored ones. The sons had all the privileges. Women had nothing. They were despised. And Paul says, in Christ, you are all sons. You have the rights. 
the privileges and the inheritance that goes to sons, and it's available to everyone. Men, women, slave, free, Greek, uh, Jew, it's available to everybody. He's been incredibly culturally subversive by saying, in Christ, when you trust in Christ by faith, you are regarded as a son and you inherit everything you are seen as favor. You get all the rights and privileges. Now, um, if you remember the play or the movie, which however you've interacted with the thing called Annie, the show movie Annie. Uh, Annie is a story about a little orphan who is living in this horrible orphanage that's dirty. And remember this Miss Hannigan, and they're all sweeping and mopping the floors and singing Hard Knock Life, and it's just... It's not fun. And uh, she one day is released, as the story goes on, she's released from the orphanage and the tyrannical Miss Hannigan to go to the estate of Daddy Warbucks, this billionaire philanthropist who brings her into her home and later adopts her. And if you remember the scene when she first shows up in this mansion, this huge, luxurious mansion and she sees it, the assistant that's with her looks at her and says, okay Annie, what do you want to do first? And Annie puts her finger on her chin and she's looking around and she says, well I guess I'll start with the windows and then maybe I'll do the floors and and then she gets interrupted by the assistant and she's like, you don't understand. You're not here to clean. Like what do you want to do? Like what do you want to play? And that instinct in Annie is the same instinct in us. God brings us in by grace to his estate. He says, you get to inherit all of this. This is all yours. Like, what do you want to do? And we think God says, okay, we want you to get to work now. Clean up. Uh, start reading these books. Start going to these meetings. And uh, stop doing that. Quit being a screw-up over here. Get your life together. Be more like this. Don't be like that. That's what we think God actually wants from us. He wants busy work from us. Clean up your life. And Paul is trying to reprogram the way that we think by saying, no, you actually have a new status now. Like the assistant that kind of brings us into the mansion. says, no, like, you don't understand. You're not an orphan anymore. You are a son. Everything that you see is yours. You inherit all of this. Uh, look at verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you an heir. He is saying everything you see, you inherit. You are the favored one. You are the father's treasure. Now, just because we uh, assent to this idea or believe in this doesn't necessarily translate your, uh, doesn't translate into your life where you live like this is true. And so before we uh, move on to the second point here, I want you to just take a quick inventory of your own life, just personally, quietly. I want you to think about uh, the tendencies with which you live your life. And I'm going I'm to lay out a couple of different uh, descriptions of what an, how an orphan lives versus how a son lives. And I want you to just honestly see which of these two columns resonates with you. Which, uh, where do you lean in terms of the way that you functionally live your life on the ground? Not what you believe in your head. Orphans. Orphans don't have intimacy with their father. Because orphans feel abandoned. They feel like nobody cares about me. So they don't have intimacy with their father. Sons are learning to live in daily, a daily intimate relationship with their father. Orphans are anxious about the future 
because they feel and they believe like no one's there to take care of them. They're on their own. Sons are becoming more freed from their anxiety because you are trusting God's love for you and his oversight of you. Orphans regularly feel guilty and condemned. Sons deeply feel forgiven and accepted. Orphans feel like uh, you have to fix all your problems because you're the only one that's there to take care of yourself. Uh, Sons feel like I don't have to fix all my problems and therefore I'm okay with looking dumb or stupid or weak or uh, messy or not put together. Orphans need to be in control, but they feel powerless. Sons don't need to be in control, but they feel confident. Orphans are motivated by self. I must take care of number one. I'm all that I have. I've got to take care of my needs. Sons are motivated by a sense of gratitude and a sense of the feeling of being loved and motivated to care for and take care of other people. It's possible... For you to actually be a son in reality and yet live and still live like an orphan. In fact, if I think about my own life, I feel like my real life has lived much on the orphan side of that column. You can be a son in reality and yet live like an orphan. And that's why Paul is trying to reprogram our thinking and saying to us, no, 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 no. You have a new status. You are a son. Remember who you are and therefore be who you are. You're a son. But he doesn't just say you have a new status. He says you have, a new, you have new clothing, some new threads. Do people still say that anymore? No, I got to know. All right, verse 26. Uh, he says this, secondly, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. When you trust in Christ, the Bible says you are mysteriously fastened to Christ Jesus. You are vitally united to him. And this is why he's using all this baptism language. He's trying to describe our union with Christ. But he tries to get this across by talking about clothing, by saying we're clothed in Christ. And I want you to think about why is he using that metaphor? What does it mean to be clothed in Christ? Well, think about this. Um, What you wear affects how people treat you. What you wear, it impacts how people treat you. If you were at the Tennessee game this past weekend, and you were sitting in the student section, and you were wearing blue, that would affect how you were treated. I'm guessing. Uh, or think about, the, think about the dude that like is in the smoky mascot like costume. Like, you know, he has the giant like smoky head and like the, the, the smoky body. And... Uh, <laughs> When you see the smoky body on campus, like if you're tailgating and you're hanging out on campus and like you see smoky around, like everyone's like, yeah, oh, smoky. Like they run over to smoky, giving them hugs, like taking selfies, high like everyone loves seeing smoky. Uh, what happens to that dude when he goes home and he takes off the mask and gets out of the smoky body and like then goes to campus? Like no one's running up to him, giving him hugs and self- wanting to take selfies with him and excited to see him. Because he was getting all the praise and all of the attention of what it was like to be Smokey because he's in Smokey. And the Bible is saying what you wear impacts how people treat you. And you are in Christ. You are clothed with Christ. And it's a wardrobe that you couldn't afford, but it was given to you. But okay, what does that mean practically? Like, uh, so what? 
Well, let's keep going. Look at verse 4. Paul writes that God sent his son born of a woman, meaning that Jesus was completely fully human. It says he was born under the law, which means that just like every human, he was born with this obligation to keep God's law. But if you keep going, it says in verse 5, he came in order to redeem those under the law. The word redeem means to release a slave from their owner by paying the full price. And in this metaphor that Paul's using, the law is the slave master. Jesus, with his life, pays the full price to the law to release us out from under the obligation to obey it in order to be saved. Jesus pays the penalty. He pays off the law with his life, with his law keeping to release us out of the obligation to obey it as a means to salvation. Think think of it like this. I know this is kind of thick and chunky, like salsa. But if you think think about it like this, if you are, let's say that you are on, let's say you're on death row. All your adult life you've been on death row and you're awaiting your execution. And uh, I come along because I'm extremely generous and I pay this multi-million dollar fine to get you released. And so you, you get released out of death row and, and, and you're, out, you're out on the streets now. But uh, now that you're on the streets, you, you are on your own, you have no connections, you have no resources, and you're just set up to live and survive by yourself. And so how are you going to live? You're going to start looking out for number one, and you're going to be anxious, and you're going to be panicky, and you're going to feel like nobody has to protect you. You've got to protect yourself. And so you're going to functionally start living the way that it looks like to live like an orphan. This is why in verse 5, Paul says, Jesus doesn't just release you from slavery and then throw you out on your own. It says that he releases you from slavery, but he also gives you the full rights as sons. That means he gets you out of the death sentence, but then he hangs a congressional medal around your neck. And he gives you all the resources and all the connections and all the access that you need. You have full rights as sons. And here's what this means. When God looks at us, He sees us as his sons because he sees his son. We are in his son. And so we are fully, 100% accepted in his sight. We're not seen as a sinner. We're not seen through the lens of our history and our baggage and our story. He doesn't even see us as a forgiven sinner that he's just going to tolerate. He fully, absolutely accepts us, delights in us, and will not love us any more or any less ever than he does right then and right there. One day you will hear God look at you and say, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Is that how you think about God? Is that how you think about the way that he thinks about you? That right now, right this moment, he cannot love you any more or any less ever? I don't know, if you're, if you're anything like me, there is that deep programming, deep suspicion that if I screw up, he's just going to get me next week. I remember in college thinking, oh, if I mess up this weekend, then he's going he's to make me bomb that text, test next week. He's just sitting up there monitoring my behavior, waiting to just flick me. But this seems to be saying, if you are clothed in Christ, you have 100% acceptance with the Father. New status, new clothing. Here's the last idea. You have a new experience. Look at verse 6. 
Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The work of Jesus secures our adoption, but it's the work of the spirit to deepen our experience of our adoption, to, to enable us to be aware of it and to enjoy it. And this is, I know this is kind of uh, mysterious and weird, but when you place your faith in Christ, God sends the Holy Spirit, the very spirit of Jesus, to indwell you, to inhabit you, to convince your soul again and again that you are actually loved. That's what the spirit does. Uh, think about this. I heard this story from uh, another pastor named Brian Chapel, and he told this story about a missionary family that when they were out on the mission field, there was this child in a neighborhood slum nearby that they adopted. Brought, them, brought this kid into their family and was raising it, and, and sometime after this kid had been adopted, uh, this kid had stolen his father's comb and, you know, it wasn't really a big deal to the family, but they wanted to talk to him about it. They knew that it was in his pocket, and, when, and they confronted him about it. And when they confronted this kid about stealing the comb, he denied it and lied about it. And then when they kind of revealed, oh, it's in your pocket, he broke down sobbing, ran out of the room, went into his room, and hid under his bed, thinking uh, a return to the slum is no doubt imminent now. Like, they're going to they're gonna send me back. And his mom follows after this kid and goes into his room and kind of gets down on the floor and lifts up the little thing by the bed and is looking under the bed and says, son, what you did was not what got you into this family. And so what you have done now is not going to get you kicked out of this family. You see what she's saying? She's looking at him and saying, look, your behavior before we even knew you, was not the thing that brought you into the family in the first place. So your behavior is not the thing that's going to get you kicked out. She's reassuring him, my love for you is unconditional. You are mine, and I love you because I love you. And you are secure, son. That is what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. That thing inside of us that thinks, God hates me. God's out to get me. God's going to ruin my life. Oh my gosh, I messed up. What does this mean? The Spirit looks at you and says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. His love for you is unconditional. You are secure. You are His. I think the modern church is crazy confused about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. But His primary job description is to take your eyes off of you and your sin and to put them on Jesus and the cross. And to convince you once again, you are his by grace. Jesus plus nothing. And that is what enables you to cry out to him, Abba, Father. Abba is, is you know, this is an Aramaic term of endearment that children would use uh, to talk to their dads when they wanted to be intimate and affectionate with them. It's, it's like our translation of like Papa or Daddy. Intimate, personal Deep connection, Daddy. And my question for you is, um, is that how you experience God? Is that, is that how you would describe your relationship with God? Intimate, personal, deep. Daddy, Papa. And if there's something inside of you that's saying no, and I feel really crappy about that. I feel this weight and this guilt of like, oh, i gotta start, I got to work on that. i got to work on that intimacy thing. 
I don't think that's the spirit. I think that's Satan. That's that deep programming inside of you that says, more guilt, more shame. You kind of are the worst, and you're sucking at the Christian life thing. But the spirit looks at you and says, yeah, you should be convicted. Gosh, my faith my faith is weak. I do not love the Lord like I want to. Uh, I do not have intimacy with him. And what the Spirit does is he takes your eyes off of your sin and he brings it back on Jesus and says, Jesus paid for my lack of faith. Jesus paid for my lack of love. Jesus has paid for my lack of intimacy with the Father. And as you experience that tidal wave and that flood of grace and unconditional love, you know what that begins to awaken in your heart? A desire to call him Papa. A desire to move towards this one that has exploded love and grace over you. That's what awakens love in you. We love him because he first loved us. I'll end with this. This is a true story that I heard recently about a guy named Ivan Mishukov. Mishukov? I've got to be pronouncing that correctly. Um, this, this Russian guy in the 90s when he was four years old... His parents abandoned him, and for two years, he was raised by dogs. It's a true story. It happened in the 90s. You can look it up. Um, he, uh, for two years, that means he, um, he survived two winters, 27 degrees below zero, by huddling up with this pack of dogs that kept him warm. They protected him. He would get food for the dogs, and he would share food with the pack. He eventually became like the pack leader. It's, it's unbelievable. But over the course of those two years, it's like the Jungle Book, but like real life. Uh, over the course of those two years, he escaped from police custody three different times. Like the police had him in their care and they provided warmth and food and like water for him. And three different times he broke out and ran away to like the wilderness to like go be with the dogs, go be with his dogs. And uh, they finally, they finally caught him by setting up a bait and a trap, like you would like trap a rat. There was like this, there was this outdoor restaurant, and they put food out, and just kind of left it there and hid in the bushes, I guess. And he comes out, takes the food, and they kind of grab him and. He, he couldn't speak any, uh, there was no language. It was just gr- like snarling and like guttural sounds, I guess. <coughs> he eventually relearns the language, uh, grows up to serve in the Russian military. He's like a normal dude now. It's like an unbelievable story. Ivan Mishukov. But I was thinking about that story because it really, like, when the police had him and he kept running away, you had to think that the police would look at him and say, like, what is wrong with you? Like, <coughs> what is wrong with you? You have forgotten who you are. You are not an animal. You are a child. And I think that story resonates with me so much in a weird way. <laughs> because there is this part of me that wants to run away from all that is good and run towards a place where there is no warmth and there is no protection and there is no nourishment. And Paul in this passage is looking at me and he's looking at you and saying, like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're confused about who you are. Why, why do you keep running from everything that is good to a place where there is no warmth and there is no protection? Don't you realize that you're a, you're a child, you're a son? Do you know who you are? 
In Christ, do you know who you are tonight? Paul is saying, in Christ you have a new status, you have new clothing, and you have a new experience. The question I want to leave you with is, who are you? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help reprogram our identities. Reprogram our sense of self. Uh, We feel like orphans. We live like orphans. And yet in Christ we are heirs. We are sons. You've given us everything. And we keep running. We keep running back to the wilderness. And I pray, Father, that even knowing that instinct and that tendency in us would not drive us to more shame and to more guilt and to more, okay, i got to do more. But it would, in fact, drive us more into your arms. That it would drive us home into the embrace of a Father that gives grace unconditionally and gives love unconditionally and floods us with unending mercy. And Father, I pray that we would make our home there because it is our home. Help us to know who we are in Christ and then to be who we are. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.